welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is a couple days late. I've had a slight sidetrack this week looking at and studying massive transfusion protocols based on a few recent experiences where I work and, and working with some new nurses in critical care. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to put together an episode on this. And so Friday, I'm going to release an episode on massive transfusion protocol. But today, I want to talk about an increasingly common oral anticoagulant seen in critical care, and that's Eliquis or Apixaban. I think it's important in critical care to have a good baseline understanding of some of the very common medications, because whether you be a mid-level, whether you be a bedside nurse, you are the one who is that direct point of contact to the patient and the patient's family. And you're able to help educate them, to show them, here's why we're doing what we're doing. Here are some of the things we're concerned with. Here's, in general, what it's going to look like. I had a family recently, we had a post-operative patient that had some significant bleeding. And they said, well, is this because of the eloquence? But you're able to say, no, 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 no. Like, we know when he stopped it. He stopped it at the appropriate time. We know the half-life. And we know, yet, this is not going to affect his bleeding. And so you're able to help bring some ease to the family. And then the family asks, well, when would we restart it? And again, we're able to walk through that situation of when we would start anticoagulation again. And so that's where I think it's really helpful to have a good basic understanding of these medications. Because again, too, I've had many times where families say, okay, we were on Coumadin, now we're on Eliquis. Why is that? Or they may say, hey, we're on Coumadin. We've heard of this. We've seen an ad for this medication. Why aren't we doing that? And so I think it's helpful to have that understanding. So Eliquis, or Apixaban, and emphasis on the ending, that A-P-I-X-A-B-A-N. So that X-A-B-A-N is a signal to say 10-A, that X-A. This is an oral 10-A inhibitor. Remember with our clotting cascade, we have that extrinsic pathway, intrinsic pathway, so we have a slower and a faster pathway, but they both terminate in that common pathway. And that common pathway, the critical step there is if we can cause inhibition to 10A, we're able to then work at that that common pathway point. And so this oral medication is able to work at that specific point. And it's a newer medication. It's one which we're starting to see more uh, FDA-approved indications for. There are, of course, going to be future clinical trials, assuredly, so we're probably going to start to see this medication used for a wider range of indications. This class of medication, I think we could also look at the oral direct thrombin inhibitors. So the oral direct thrombin inhibitors and the oral 10A inhibitors I think are really two medication classes that are going to continue to grow in prevalence in critical care as they're studied more. I think currently some of the real big advantages of this medication, and and really right off the bat, is first and foremost, we see that they in general have fewer medication interactions. We don't have the same dietary restrictions as Coumadin. They have a rapid onset. They have a shorter half-life. They typically have pretty consistent fixed dosing. They do not require regular 
monitoring. We know we can easily reverse it with specific reversal medications. Um, the other th the issue, though, with them in particular, like I said, one is, is how much they've been studied, of course, and they have to get go through the clinical trials and FDA approval, and so we're still in those processes. And then additionally, price, so it's still price prohibitive. So people, certain specific types of insurance or people without insurance could have trouble using this medication. So let's start to look at some of the specifics. We kind of know now the mechanism being a 10A inhibitor. So this is an oral medication, so it's going to have to be absorbed through the GI system. So it has roughly 50% bioavailability. Now bioavailability simply means we have given 100% of the medication when you swallow the pill, assuming your patient, you know, swallowed the pill. But it has to be absorbed through the GI system, and once it enters the bloodstream, how much of that is left? And we have 50% bioavailability. Remember, if you give an IV medication, you're going to have 100% bioavailability. It tends to have a slightly delayed absorption, and in general, in chronic dosing, we're looking at approximately a 12-hour half-life. So typically, you're going to see a lot of BID dosing on this medication. So it's a substrate of cytochrome P450. So again, let's just talk about what does a substrate mean. A substrate simply means that an enzyme acts upon a substrate. So the substrate here is our medication we're administering. And cytochrome P450 is an enzyme that is going to act upon that substrate to, to produce the desired product that we want in the circulatory system. And so that's important to remember because the cytochrome P450 system is, is, is linked to our hepatic system. And so because of that, if we have another medication affecting the cytochrome P450 enzyme, it may affect our dosing. If we have hepatic impairment, that could affect our dosing. And so sometimes I think you can see cytochrome P450 and go, what the heck, and you hear substrate. But at the end of the day, it's a bit more simple than it may come off. And then it also interacts with the P-glycoprotein. So again, cytochrome P450 and the P-glycoprotein system. The reason it's worthwhile, just keeping it in the back of your mind, is this is obviously more the pharmacist's world, but if we have medications that interact or use the, the P-glycoprotein, for example, that could affect our dosing. Now, this medication is excreted in the urine and feces. So patients who are on... Eliquis, we do need to have concern for renal and hepatic function. Decreased renal function, decreased hepatic function can both affect this medication. Now, we typically are going to use Eliquis for a few specific reasons. In general, it's for prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism. So we're going to see this for things like post-hip knee surgery, so we're going to have that kind of prophylactic treatment. We might have long-term VTE prevention. We also might see this in non-valvular AFib. Now, this is important. So if we have a valvular abnormality with AFib, it is not FDA approved currently. So we would probably be looking at Coumadin. Now, the question is, why does that matter? Remember, with, with atrial fibrillation, we, we don't necessarily have that quite the proper emptying of blood through the heart. We can have some pooling effect. So we're at a higher clot risk. 
therefore a higher stroke risk. Valvular abnormalities create some significant flow disturbances with regurgitation, etc. And so because of that, we have official FDA approval for Coumadin, for example, for that. But at the moment, we don't have that for Eliquis. So again, we're typically going to see this more for a prophylactic use for we're talking about things like DVTs, we're talking about PEs, and of course our post-surgical patients, and then our chronic AFib or like our paroxysmal AFib patients. So people kind of flip in and out of AFib. Now, dosing is, is pretty standardized. Now, my, just this general dosing is from a specific pharmacy book. And of course, I started doing some research. There tends to be a touch of variation from source to source. Uh, for me, I'm looking at basic and chemical pharmacology, the 15th edition, they talk about this. And in their discussion, they say for AFib, you're typically looking at about five milligrams BID. So we're going to five milligrams twice a day. If you're looking for like VTE prophylaxis, we're looking at something like 10 milligrams for a week BID, and then they progress to five milligrams BID. Hip knees are a little bit different. So sometimes for prophylaxis for that, we're looking at something like two and a half milligrams BID. The important part to think about is mostly it's fairly fixed dosing. Remember what we talked about in the episode with Coumadin, there tends to be a bit more variability. And I've seen that in particular when we initiate and bridge patients to Coumadin in our unit, you tend to see quite a bit of variation from patient to patient. And it really, I don't know, to me, if you were to say, what's my standard dosing for Coumadin, I would say I really could not hone in because it varies so much from patient to patient and clinical situation to clinical situation. One of the real significant advantages of Eliquis is that fixed dosing, and we do not have to consistently rely on the INR testing of Coumadin. We tend to have a very consistent level of anticoagulation. Now, we said before we don't have to do regular monitoring, but if we wanted to, we could. We can do a 10 a, so an anti-10A lab. And of course, we would just calibrate this for a Pixaban and have a, a specific level of anticoagulation. We're also able to do reversal of this with a medication called Andexa. This medication is not without risk. This is an IV infusion, typically with an initial loading dose and then a continuation dose, roughly up to two hours. There have been reports, though, of some significant thrombosis-related events post-infusion or during the infusion, including things, too, like cardiac arrest. So it's this is not a low-risk medication, so it's something to think through the clinical situation and how bad is the current hemorrhage and its relationship to the patient being on Eliquis. This can also be reversed with a four-factor concentrate, so clotting factor concentrate. So there are multiple ways we can do reversal of Eliquis. So just as kind of a refresher, I think this is a medication that most likely we're going to see more often, and I think you're going to start to see more and more clinical trials. Right now, it's not approved for people like with an artificial heart valve, but there looks like there have been some initial studies in, for example, pigs that were put 
uh, mechanical valves in, and they were able to monitor with Eliquis, and they're starting to see some really promising results. And so I think, you know, it would be interesting to see how Eliquis grows over time. So like for currently, if you're a patient, for example, with an artificial heart valve, you have, you know, an LVAD. So you've got a left ventricular assist device and we're anticoagulated. You know, we're not approved for that. It's going to be, we're going to still be using Coumadin. And so it'll be interesting to see how this medication progresses. Well, thanks for listening. And on Friday, the massive transfusion protocol will release. (music) 